Please turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. The second chapter of Revelation. Tonight we resume our consideration and study of the letters sent by our Lord through the Apostle John to the seven churches in Asia Minor in the latter part of the first century. We are in the midst of our study of the letter to Thyatira, which began in verse 18 of chapter 2 and goes all the way to verse 29. But tonight we'll read simply verses 24 through 29 of Revelation chapter 2. But to you I say, to the rest that are in Thyatira, as many as have not this teaching, who know not the deep things of Satan, as they are wont to say, I cast upon you none other burden. Nevertheless, that which you have, hold fast till I come. And he that overcomes, and he that keeps my works unto the end, to him will I give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to shivers, as I also have received of my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now as we begin to consider this text again, let's join together briefly to ask the Lord's help in the teaching and the preaching of his word. Our Father, you can behold in the repetition of our requests our sense of need, our consciousness of our own weakness and dependence upon you. And you know we believe our desire that your people profit from your word preached. We desire, O Lord, that this the central means appointed by you to the salvation of sinners and the building up of Zion be owned of you in this place, in these hearts tonight. So God of help and grace, come now and speak to us. Use this frail, earthy vessel and confound the wise, subdue the rebel, break the proud, exalt Christ, comfort the discouraged and the weary, and bless your people with truth. Hear us, Lord, hear our words not for their own sake, but for the sake of him who died that people like us could have our prayers answered and could march in Zion's army. Lord, for Christ's sake, hear us. O oh Lord, 
have mercy upon us tonight. Let us not think that because you were gracious this morning, it's a given that tonight things will just happen. Oh God, help us to gird every part of our redeemed humanity together to make possible the word to go forth in power. Come, O oh God, and do a mighty work in us tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What we have considered so far in the letter to the church at Thyatira it comes under the heading of warnings and blessings. And where we have found ourselves in the last three messages, including this one, in the letter to the church at Thyatira, is in the uncovering of the blessed part or the promises that the Lord has given to those who have not swallowed the line of this Jezebel who lives in this church and teaches in this church and whose life and teaching has not been rebuked by this church. They have been rebuked, they have been warned, and now the Lord addresses himself to those among them who are not guilty of their great sin of the tolerance of immorality, idolatry, and false teaching. And so we've been dealing with promises from the Lord. These promises have taken on the look of three categories. And we've underlined these three categories in the following way. First, the encouraging reward. And we dealt with that last time under the two rewards promised to him that overcomes in faith, in persevering faith, until the Lord returns. And those two things promised as rewards to the overcomer were ruler over the nations and the morning star. The first thing the Lord had promised the people was that he would lay no other burden on them. And he listed that burden that he would not lay on them as being a burden that was over and above what they already bore. And we saw under that heading that the Lord confirmed and clarified their perpetual duty. And then he listed the reward and blessing of their faithful obedience. And that reward involved the burdenless or the lightness of the burden. As long as they continued to keep what they already had, nothing was to be added to them. And then he promised to give them rule over the nations and the morning star. I believe we've covered that. So tonight we move on to the next two sections of this area of promise in these positive benefits to be gained by the people who would endure in the keeping of the faith of Christ. The first heading, remember, was the encouraging reward. The second is the underlying blessing. The underlying blessing. And then the third, the sobering significance of the promise. The encouraging reward of the promise, which we've covered, the underlying blessing of the promise, and the sobering significance of the promise. Tonight, consider with me the underlying blessing of this promise of reward to him that overcomes. Now look carefully at the text. He says in verse 25 that we are to hold fast that which we have till he come. 
Now remember, what we read that is significant to the church in Thyatira applies to us as well. These are representative letters as well as real letters. They are letters written to real churches that existed in the first century, but the principles apply to real churches that have existed throughout the 2,000 years of Christian history and however much longer the Lord allows the church to be in this world. And so it applies to us. So we say he tells us to hold fast what we have till he comes. Then he says in verse 26, he that overcomes and he that keeps my works unto the end, to him will I give authority over the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to shivers. And then he says something that gives us a clue as to the underlying blessing of his promise. It is a blessing that provides a girding up or a foundation for all the other things that come to God's people by way of promise. He says in 27b, As I also have received of my Father. As I also have received of my Father. So let us identify the underlying blessing that undergirds and upholds all the rest of the privilege. How is it to be identified? Well, I would like to direct your attention to some other passages of Scripture so as to make you understand why this is clear to me that the underlying blessing that supports all the rest is nothing other than union with Christ. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Our Lord is encouraging the people in Thyatira who have kept the truth and who are keeping his works. And he's saying that he will give them rule over the nations as his Father has given it to him. He is connecting their recipients of authority over the nations in the word of God and the power of the gospel with his authority over the nations. He's identifying what they're to receive from his hands with what he has received from his father's hands. So let's look at Ephesians 1 and then chapter 2 to see this principle clearly laid out in other texts of the gospel. In Ephesians 1 beginning with verse 3 we read this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, you see, it's so precious and it's so important to recognize that all the truths of the gospel are blessed truths. They are truths that are designed to uplift the soul of the saint. They are truths that are designed to comfort the saint. The saint does not require anything more than the simple truth to encourage his heart. He is not particularly demanding of external evidences of kindness and comfort as he is. Tell me the truth. Tell me the facts. Tell me the truth. And so when he hears truths of God and his saving work, Blessing pours out of his lips. Now, look at the truth that's first on the list in verse 4. 
even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now, there are many people and many who are professing Christians who find no comfort at all in the truth of election. Electing some to be saved before the world is ever formed. But the Apostle Paul has no problem seeing that as a precious and blessed truth. Because he understands that God didn't owe this to any rotten sinner. And that if any sinner ever was chosen unto salvation, it was a marvelous display of grace. And it's a blessed thing that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ chose us in him. And it's clear that if he did it, it must have had nothing at all to do with us or any participation of ours or any merit of ours or anything about us. And that's made clear by the fact that the choice was made before the world was even founded. That's a blessed truth to those who were chosen, to those who know the forgiveness of sin. And then he shows the end for which we were chosen. That electing choice was not made irregardless or regardless of the results. That choice was not one that said, I'm going to save some people whether they like it or not and whether it makes any difference in them or not. Some folks are going to go to heaven in the end no matter what happens in between. That's not election. They were chosen, he says, that we should be holy and without blemish before him. The goal of the choice was to make us holy. Not simply he chose to give out tickets to a select few and let them in at the last day despite the fact that they're just like everybody else. But he chose to change them from what they were, like everybody else, into something else. From unholy to holy. From ungodly to godly. And so he chose them that they should be holy and without blemish before him. In love, having foreordained us unto adoption as sons through Jesus Christ unto himself. You see, it was bathed and rooted in love. It was not capricious and arbitrary. It wasn't a cold, calculated decision by a machine in the sky. It was a God who loved us and chose us in his son. And then it says... It was according to the good pleasure of his will. That's all it's according to. The good pleasure of his will. Now that has two th things connected. It's whatever he wanted to do. But what he wanted to do was good. It was a good pleasure. It was a benevolent thing. So the two sides of the blessing is that God chose to do it as he pleases. But his pleasure is a good pleasure. It is a benevolent pleasure. It is a well-meaning pleasure. And the ultimate end in verse 6, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. Now we draw attention to a vital truth in the midst of the first chapter of Ephesians. In the middle of all these blessings of salvation and the blessedness of the God of our salvation, we have already seen that He chose us from before the foundation of the world in Christ. And now we see that he has freely bestowed this grace upon us 
in the Beloved. Capital B. The same person in Christ. In whom we have our redemption. Through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses. According to the riches of his grace. Which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. Making known unto us the mystery of his will. According to his good pleasure which he purposed in him. Unto a dispensation of the fullness of the times. To sum up all things in Christ. The things in the heavens and the things upon the earth. In him I say. In whom also we were made a heritage. Having been foreordained according to the purpose of him. Who works all things after the counsel of his will. To the end that we should be under the praise of his glory. Who had before hoped in Christ. In whom you also having heard the word of the truth. The gospel of your salvation. In whom having also believed. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Which is an earnest of our inheritance. Under the redemption of God's own possession. Under the praise of his glory. Time after time. The apostle goes back. To that phrase in him, in whom, in Christ, in the beloved, in whom, in whom, in whom. It's all centered in Christ. It's all grounded and rooted in Christ. And so anything I have, it came to me in Christ. And I have nothing that came to me outside of Christ. It wasn't a cold, isolated election that God somehow is going to save a bunch of people with or without Christ. It's all in Christ. This is vital for us to understand. Election is not an arbitrary act of God by which he breaks all the rules and saves some folks without means. Nor is it a, is it a purpose of God to save some people whether they ever believe in Christ or not. Or whether they ever come to Christ or not. Election doesn't secure salvation whether or not you believe. Election secures salvation in Christ and only in Christ. And so he enumerates blessings, the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places which are ours from our blessed God, and every one of them came to us from the fountain of it in God's electing love all the way to the fruition of it in the glory to come in his beloved Son, Christ Jesus. Now look at chapter 2 of Ephesians, verse 4. Now, he's just listed and discussed in the first three verses what we were. And he describes those that are on the road to hell. He describes their life. They are dominated by trespasses and sins. They are dead in them. They walk according to the course of this world. They make their decisions about whom they date on the basis of how good they look and how they make them feel and have nothing to do with dating people because of Christ and his kingdom and how those people are inside. They walk according to the course of the world. They get jobs based on merely a consideration of how much money is to be paid 
and not a consideration of the principles connected with the career and the compromise that may be demanded of them in their faith. They do all kinds of things out of a motivation of doing it the way it works in this world without looking at the Bible and getting their marching orders from Christ and acting on principle. They walk according to the course of this age, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience, and that's what we all once were. But in verse 4 he says, But God, being rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. Some authorities say with Christ. It means the same thing. In Christ. By grace have you been saved. And raised us up with him. And made us to sit with him. In the heavenly places. In Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come he might show. The exceeding riches of his grace. In kindness toward us. In Christ Jesus. So the apostle Paul is saturated. In his thinking. With this business of in Christ. Every time he thinks of a Christian, he thinks of Christ. Every time he thinks of a blessing on a Christian, he sees it in the realm of Christ. It is brought to us in Christ. What happened when Christ died? We died with him. God considered us to be in Christ when he died. So we died. He died to sin once. We died in Him to sin once. He rose for over the power of sin. We rose together in Him. Isn't it say it? Raised us up with Him in verse 6. Raised us up with Him. And then, as it were, a continuing action in the phrasing of verse 6. And made us to sit together with Him in the heavenly places. Now, even there you can see the biblical doctrine of our ruling over the nations. How do we get the rule of the nations? How do we have authority over the Gentiles? How do we get to preach the gospel and bring down strongholds? How are we capable of walking through this world at enmity with us and the cause of Christ and still march through it with triumph? and joy, and victory, and confidence. How do we have the right to claim territory in an alien world for Christ? How do we have a right to pray in this place on Wednesday and ask God to change the mind of legislators? What right do we have to have effect on what is done in Moscow, or Washington, or Paris, or London, or Manila? What right do we have? We have the right of those who sit on the throne in Christ. We have the rule over the nations because He has the rule over the nations. And that's what He's saying in Revelation 2. As I received of my Father, I give to you. And here's what Ephesians 2 is telling us. We have been made to sit together in the heavenly places with Christ. 
There's no difference essentially in those two doctrines. In Revelation 2, we're given the promise of rule over the nations with a rod of iron. But it's the same language that is given to the Messiah in Psalm 2. When the father says to his son, I'll give you to rule over the nations with a rod of iron. So the father's given it to him. And by virtue of that fact, he's given it to us. We read it in verse 27. Look again in chapter 3 of Revelation. Two times at least it shows up in these seven letters. This principle of identification with Christ in his authority. So that when we when he gets blessing, we get blessing in him. This is a truth that cannot be expounded in one sermon adequately, but it's a golden and central truth of the Christian gospel. If you're familiar with Professor John Murray's book, Redemption and Accomplished and Applied, you're aware that he saves this chapter on union with Christ till the end of all the blessings of salvation. And he puts it at the end of all the application of salvation because he says there's no place to stick it in the middle of them because this one's the one that undergirds all of them. This is a blessed and central truth, but it's not easy to capture. And it cuts across some of the categories of our understanding and thinking as Greeks and Romans, but it's biblical and it's true. In chapter 3 of Revelation, verse 21, he's speaking to the church in Laodicea, and he says, He that overcomes, I will give to him to sit down with me in my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father, in his throne. So there's this promise of Christ that in union with him, we will get the things promised. The underlying blessing is identified as union from, with Christ, from which flows all the good, blessed, sweet, and wonderful benefits that God bestows upon his people. So that our salvation is all of God, all of grace. And all of Christ, chosen in him, crucified in him, buried in him, raised up together with him, seated with him, receiving the Spirit, the blessing of Abraham, in him, access to the Father, in him, answered prayer, in him, even so that in First Thessalonians chapter 4 we read that they who are asleep in Jesus will God bring with him. And we shall not precede them in the gathering up of all of God's saints. So even those who are dead in Christ have not been severed from union with him. They are regarded as in Jesus. Not even death can break this union. In fact, that is the secret basis for our confidence in the resurrection of the body. If you are in Christ, you must rise because he's the first fruits of a whole harvest to be reaped at the end. He's the evidence that the harvest has begun and that the harvest will be finished. And those who are in him, in God's positioning grace when he rises from the dead, really in history, will themselves rise when he comes to finish what he began. That's why the whole creation groans together until now, waiting for the redemption of the body at the time when Christ returns. That's why that at his coming, 
the last enemy death will be put under his feet. That's why that those that are on, around the throne who were beheaded for the testimony of Christ in Revelation 20 are blessing his name because the second death has no power over them. Because they've been participants in the first resurrection. They've been raised up together with Christ. They are seated with Christ. My dear friend, if you can see by faith where you sit with Christ, if you can live in the light of the fact of what you are and what you have in Christ, you have gone a long way to triumphing over this world. That's what John means when he says, this is the victory that overcomes the world. Even our faith. Because, see, you can't see it, can you? Where's the evidence that you're seated together with Christ? Faith is the evidence of things hoped for. The substance of things not seen. If you can't see it, where do you, you need substance. Faith is the substance. Faith is that which you hold in your hand. And if you can believe God's word, you can live in confidence and triumph. Because you're in Christ. Now there's one other verse passage that we must see, I believe, to help us further understand this blessed thing of union with Christ. And it's found in Romans chapter 6. It deals with the doctrine of baptism. I, brethren, cannot believe that this passage has no reference to water baptism. I think it has a primary reference to spiritual baptism. But I don't believe uh, in in agreement with some of my pedo baptist brethren that this is, has nothing to do with water. I don't believe you can separate the two. The whole object here is to show the rationale for the public display of baptism. What is our baptism significance? When we go under the water, what is the picture that's being painted? What's the display that's being shown? And so in chapter 6 of Romans, the apostle is telling us something of the issue. Verse 2 says, Who... We who died to sin, how shall we no longer live therein? Well, somebody says, what, when did we die to sin? I'm like, what are you talking about? I don't recall that experience. It seems to me that my life's been characterized by dealing with sin. When did I die to sin? What do you mean? And he says in verse 3, are you ignorant? That all of you who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now, that has primary reference to the spiritual work the Holy Spirit who baptized us all into one body, who baptized us into Christ Jesus. But that's the picture our water baptism has, that we are united with Christ. Don't you know that when you were baptized into Christ, you were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him. How did we get buried with him? Through baptism into death. We were baptized into his death. Therefore, we were dead with him. So when he was buried, we happened to be there in him, and we were buried with him. That's how we got into the burial, because we got into the death. Through baptism into death, through immersion into his death, we were buried with him. All right? That, verse 4b, like as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we also might walk in newness of life. The reason that it is impossible for a person to be converted to Christ and continue to live in sin is because it is not part of the nature of what's happened. Conversion means he's been buried with Christ and raised with Christ to a new life. 
If there's no new life, it means he's not been buried with Christ. He didn't die with Christ. Sin still rules. He's still dead in sin. If he's dead to sin, he lives a new life. And he's characterized by it. It's just not possible, and that's why he's, that's the whole issue he's dealing with from verse 1, when someone said, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And Paul says, that's, uh, God forbid, that's utterly impossible. That's absurd. How can that be? How can you who died to sin continue to live in it? The answer, obviously, is you can't. You died to that. And the whole rationale behind the, the argument is, you've been united with Christ. Just as Christ has been raised from the dead, so have you. For if we have become united with him, in verse 5, in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away, that so, so that we should no longer be in bondage to sin. For he that has died is released from sin. But if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dies no more, death no more has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died unto sin once. But the life that he lives, he lives unto God. Even so, reckon you also yourselves to be dead unto sin, but alive unto God in Christ Jesus. How can you reckon it so? It doesn't happen because you reckon it so. You reckon it so because it happened. How do you write in your bank book that you have so many dollars in the bank and account it on your ledger. You cannot do that legitimately if the money's not there. And this word of reckon is the same kind of word. It's an accounting term, which means you consider it so because it is so. Reckon, therefore, yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. However, Having identified this blessed and foundational gospel truth of union with Christ, we need to consider something else. How is this thing achieved? You see, the triumphs of Christ are shared triumphs. How do we obtain rule over the nations and the morning star? By what process? Are we speaking of a people who sit around with rule over the nations and the morning star, but whose lives have nothing to do with Christianity? Are we talking about people that one time made a decision for Jesus and they're saved and they go ahead through their lives and they, they say, oh, I've got rule over the nations. I don't know what that means. I've got the morning star. I don't care about it, but I've got it. And a lot of people, because they don't understand the essence of the Christian life, are not impressed with these promises. They read Revelation 2 and the church to Thyatira. No big deal. Who wants the morning star? Who wants rule over the nations? I don't have any rule over anything. I don't need a star. I don't know what he's talking about. And they don't even read into it to discover what it means. Because they're not interested. Now, we're not talking about that kind of a guy. We're talking about a person who, by virtue of his union with Christ, has not only entered into the blessing received, but is entered into the combat in the battle that achieves the ends promised.
the way these things are obtained is through instrumentality. In other words, Christ himself rules over the nations right now through his people. Do you understand that? Have a problem with that? The New Testament says that the church is what? The body of Christ. That's a fairly intimate relationship, is it not? We are the body of Christ. What did Christ say to his apostles? After I'm gone to the Father, greater works than these shall you do, because I go to the Father. The Spirit will come, the Spirit will come upon the church, and the church will achieve, achieve greater and wider spread victories than he himself did in the flesh. Raising Lazarus' body doesn't hold a candle to raising dead sinners by simple preaching. The preaching of the gospel is the power of God. Has there not been much greater of that done since Jesus departed than there was before? He's not talking about individual miracles that surpass his individual miracles. Nor was he intending to say that it would be the church's practice to perpetuate those types of signs which he did to prove his doctrine. That's not the point. We're not to use that text to defend our miracle-working crusades. That's not the issue. The, you can't top raising a dead man if you were talking about the miraculous. I'd like, I don't know what anybody could come up with that's a greater thing than that in terms of kind. But that's not what he's dealing with. He's promising that the church will be much less limited in its access to authority and its power over the souls of man than he was limited. When the Spirit comes... They'll, they're not going to worship in this mountain or in the other mountain. But wherever they worship in spirit and in truth, and the world is going to be the beneficiary of such a universal blessing. But the Lord is doing this in great battle. And here comes that word confluence that we talked about in our, in our small group meeting yesterday. The confluence of divine activity and human activity. And I believe that two passages of Scripture, I think we've seen them, but I want to take you back to them again. I want you to understand the significance and essence of these things can help us to understand them. Second Samuel chapter 22 is the first one. I, this struck me in my daily reading several weeks ago. Second Samuel 22, an Old Testament picture of this principle such a blessed principle of the mixture the confluence of God's work and man's work here is an Old Testament saint giving praise to God for victories in war but if you've had even a slight view of the, of the Old Testament, you know that often when you see that the Lord fought for them and the Lord gave them victory, that in almost every case, they did a lot of stuff too. If you go back and look, they were, they, in Jericho, they marched around this place seven times. They blew trumpets with Gideon. They, they held a, a lights under bushels and they blew trumpets. Why do any of that if it's all God? If salvation is all of God and all of grace and all of Christ, why not go home tonight Lie down on the bed, breathe a little short prayer, and say, okay, it's, all, it's in your hands, God. I'm not going to think about it, do it. I'm not going to open my Bible. If you want to save me, you'll save me. Why not live in perfect stoicism, 
an imperfect retreat because it's all of God. And, and wouldn't that give great glory to God just to wait and if God wants to save, he can save me. Well, one reason that you can't do that is because that ain't the way it gets done. That's simply not the way God has been pleased to do it. Look at what he says in verse 34 and following. 2 Samuel 22. He makes his feet like hinds feet and sets me upon my high places. He teaches my hands to war so that my arms do bend a bow of brass. You have also given me the shield of your salvation. And your gentleness has made me great. You have enlarged my steps unto me. Look at the duo here. You have enlarged my steps. It's not one or the other. God did it, but I'm the one walking with larger steps. I'm the one making more triumphs and marching further. My feet have not slipped. I have pursued my enemies and destroyed them. Neither did I turn again till they were consumed. Now here's a picture of mortification of sin. You pursue your enemies. You don't just hope that they'll leave you alone. You pursue them. You don't let them pursue you and live on the defensive all your life. You pursue your enemies and you keep on. And when you get them down a little bit, you don't back off and give them breath. You pursue them until you consume them. And don't kid yourself that you've consumed any one of your enemies yet. The day you think that, that's when they sneak into the camp and blow up the whole troop. Neither did I turn again till they were consumed. I've consumed them and smitten them through so that they cannot rise. Yea, they're fallen under my feet. For you have girded me with strength under the battle. You have subdued unto me those that rose up. Now who is it? Is it did David do it or did God do it? I've subdued my enemies. They're under my feet. Then the next verse. You subdued them. Well, which is it? Which is it? You have also made my enemies turn their backs to me. You did it. And then look at the next in verse 41b. That I might cut them off that hate me. They looked, but there was none to save. Even to the Lord, but he answered them not. Then did I beat them small as the dust of the earth. I did crush them as the mire of the streets and did spread them abroad. You also have delivered me from the strivings of my people. You have kept me to be the head of the nations of people whom I have not known shall serve me. And then he goes on into this messianic prophetic passage about Messiah's testimony. But the principle of spiritual warfare is clearly laid out there in this confluence between God's activity and man's. Two rivers flowing, separate, individual rivers, but they meet and there's a confluence. And where they meet, there's no distinguishing between the two. They're all one when they meet. And yet the, the waters from the one have met the waters from another. And if you could separate them all out, you could distinguish that this is from the Mississippi and this is from the Missouri. But they have this confluence here near St. Louis and they, they're all one all of a sudden. So in a sense, when you see Mississippi flowing down to New Orleans and past it to the Gulf, you see the Missouri flowing down New Orleans, and even though it's not called Missouri at that point. And then when they flow into the Gulf, what is the Gulf of Mexico but all the collected rivers? 
from this side of the continental divide and from that side of the Appalachians that flowed together and went to the Gulf. You've got lots of distinctive rivers. but Well, that's the principle of the confluence, the biblical doctrine of God's activity, meeting man's activity, so that when you see it at work, it's hard to distinguish between the two. It all comes together, and it always comes together. That's the principle. Now turn into the New Testament to Ephesians 6. That hymn that we selected tonight, taken from one of the passages in Ephesians 6, ignorantly selected. There was purpose in it. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning with verse 10. An exhortation to the brethren. Finally, be strong. Well, that's a commandment to brethren. You fellows, be strong. You sisters, be strong. But notice... Be strong in the Lord. You can never separate it. There is the duty for you to be strong. But you never can be strong except in the Lord. But it's not that let the Lord do it. It's you be strong in the Lord. And in the strength of His might. You put on the whole armor. You've got to do this. If you don't do it, you're going to get killed by the enemy. You get your armor on. But whose armor is it? It's the armor of God. Meaning armor that comes from God, that flows out of God. That you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. It's your job to stand. There's no question about God's ability to stand against the wiles of the devil. Well, how are you going to stand? You've got to put on God's armor and be strong in God's might so that you can stand when the devil comes. For our wrestling, and notice whose wrestling it is, our wrestling is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the powers, against the world rulers of this darkness, the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Wherefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore. Great, I'm willing to, but how? Here it is, having girded your loins with truth. How do you run through a troop and leap over a wall? Every man of battle, every good athlete knows the principle of girding up the loins before he takes on a great athletic task. Well, this is the picture of athletics in war. Gird up the loins, but with what? With truth. That's where you run through the troop. That's how you leap over the wall. Gird up your loins with truth, God's truth. And having put on the breastplate... Of righteousness. Whose righteousness? Christ's. But you must wear it. It's in that righteousness that your chest and your heart and your vital organs are protected. And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, you're going, you're walking for the gospel and in the gospel with all taking up the shield of faith. You're not, and this is something you have to learn to wield. There may be an arrow coming from this side and you have to move it over here. And there's an arrow coming. You always apply faith at those points. How do you overcome the world? By skillful wielding of the shield. But what is it the shield of? Of faith. 
Faith in God's might. Faith in God's promises. Faith in Christ who has been given by His Father rule over the nation. Faith in the fact that I in Christ have authority over all this. Not that I have to take authority. Not that through magic words I beat the devil when I learn these little secret uh, epithets that I can spiel out and I think I've got some sort of advantage over the common ordinary Christian. But the realities of accomplished redemption in my Savior and my understanding and appreciation for the fact that I was with him in all that and any man all that and I rule and reign with him. So I take faith and that's a shield wherewith we're able to quench all the fiery darts or the burning arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation, the head wound, the deadly wound, the salvation that God has given I can't be killed. I can't be touched. I can't be hurt by the devil. The second death has no power over me. And the sword of the Spirit. This is warfare. You need a weapon. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, how are you going to beat the devil? You're not going to do it if you're sacking out when you ought to be studying your Bible. You're not going to do it by waiting for somebody to spoon feed you the Scripture. You're not going to do it lying in your bed saying, let go and let God. It's all of God, so let the Lord win the battle today. Lord, use your weapons. Lord, go out and fight for us. i got things to do. The reason some of you are halt and lame and wounded and sickly and sore and bleeding is because instead of you going out and cutting off the enemy's head with your sword, you've let him sneak in and grab hold of you in your sleep. Don't be perplexed that the Lord doesn't seem to be righteous in answering your prayers. You said, oh, Lord, give me victory. Well, how do you get victory? You get it by the full employment of your whole redeemed humanity to occupy yourself with these means God has provided. How do you get discouraged, brethren, and almost give up the faith? How does that happen to you? I'll tell you how. You take your eyes off of biblical truth. You refuse to discipline your mind to think on gospel truth and you give yourself over to looking at circumstance and providence that you don't like and the devil comes in and shoots a fiery arrow right into your heart. Or let's put it in its accurate picture. He shoots a fiery arrow onto the thatched roof of your house and the smoldering begins and the house begins to set ablaze and then panic begins to set in and your livelihood and security and safety comes into question. Why? Because you yourself were not prepared with the word of God to fight him and to slay him and to quench his darts with faith in the truth. That's why we say that chronic, undisciplined depression is sin. Hear my words clearly. Chronic, undisciplined depression is sin. Unless there is a chemical reason. And if there is a chemical reason, it is your duty as a Christian to find out that chemical problem and get it straight the best you can with medical help. If you're not willing to do that or trying to do that, that tells me there's sin in it. But if there's not a chemical problem, an organic problem that can be traced down with good research in your bloodstream, it's sin if your depression continues on. It's one thing to go out and climb in the cave and say, let me die. It's another when the Lord comes and says, get up and go, to say, no, I'm staying here. Don't you do it. 
But the reason some of you live like that, and the devil just sort of has access to you regularly. You've just given him notice that in certain situations you're available, you're vulnerable. You ought to be wielding a sword against him, and he's doing all the offensive fighting. You backed into the corner, you don't have your shield, you got your helmet lying over on the side, you got your breastplate kind of hanging loose, and the devil sees the vulnerability and the weakness, and don't you think he's not out to kill you? Some of you are hanging by a thread. And God's provided all the armor you need and all the weaponry you need to win. We fight. But we fight in God's armor. The strength is His. But we must bear that strength. The armor is His. But we must wear that armor. Everyone who arrives safely in heaven will give all the glory to God who brought them. But nobody will arrive safely in heaven who did not exert their strenuous efforts. That's what Bunyan understood when he wrote The Pilgrim's Progress. You don't get your conversion at this gate and stroll down a lane of nice rose-covered smelly, sweet, uh, fragrant little pathways leisurely making your way to a visible city. And in a few blocks, you're there. Neither do you step through that gate and find yourself in that city in your next step. Between that gate is a narrow road that leads to life. It's a compressed way. Few there be that find it, that enter it. And some who thought they found it get very discouraged when they begin to see what it entails. And they prove that they never entered the proper gate at all. You've read Pilgrim's Progress and you know there are those illustrations in the story itself of those who... Why go that way? That's the tough way. We'll go around the, the side. But you can't get there that way. You can't get there that way. So you see, it's Christ who rules the nations... But he rules it right now through his church. And we rule in him. It is his glory that's the morning star. But it's our morning star in him. And it's our glory. That's what Romans 8 means when it says the sons of God and the universe are going to be liberated in the glorious liberty of the sons of God. Everything Jesus has won is ours. But everything we have, we must win. That sounds hard to understand, doesn't it? But I tell you, I thought about it again this afternoon. This is a generation of people who do not want to fight or work for anything. And I'm convinced that it's the primary reason that this all this shoddy theology in evangelicalism is floating around. In seminaries, they have courses teaching you how to get the victory by doing nothing. Just sit back and wait. And they use Ephesians 6 and expound it in such a way and with such a twist that it makes you think that if you go exert anything about yourself that somehow you're going to miss the grace of God in it. That if you try, you're not trusting. My Bible says if you trust, you'll try. My Bible teaches me that whenever I understand what God has done for me in His Son, it engages my redeemed humanity rather than put it to sleep. If you're asleep in your soul, if you're not engaged in grappling with the devil, if you don't have some manhood in you in which you're saying, I'm going to fight that guy. 
Resist the devil and he will flee from you, the Bible says. If you're not involved in finding ways to resist him and to fight his kingdom and to attack his strongholds and to bombard him with the bombs of heaven, then you don't understand the gospel and you've misapprehended what it means for Christ to have won the victory for you. He is not baking a cake for his kiddies, delivering it to them in the bed, spooning it into their mouths and letting them go back to sleep until next cake time. That's not the goal of your life. It's not the goal of God's redeeming of you. And it's absurd for anybody to live with that mentality. It's being taught in evangelical seminaries. They don't use the terminology of cake, but that's what everybody means. In Philippians chapter 3, if you'll turn over there from Ephesians just a couple of pages, you'll see the Apostle Paul's understanding of this thing. He's talking about suffering the loss of all things, that he may count them but refuse, that he may gain Christ in verse 8. And then in verse 9, be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, even that which is of the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Now notice, he is perfectly happy and content to do nothing to attempt to get right with God by working to keep the law. He knows that all the righteousness which gives him, puts him in good stand with God comes from God and there's nothing he does. He has that clear. He's not trying to get to heaven by doing good works. It's useless. It's futile. It's blasphemous to try. He's got that clear. But read on in verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. If by any means I may attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Brethren, I couldn't understand that verse for years and years and years and years. What is that little passage doing there? If, if God's already given me all that, I don't have to attain anything. I don't understand that. It's grace. It's a gift. It's free. What do I have to attain? The resurrection from the dead is what I have to attain. Look, look what he says in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained or am already made perfect, but I press on, if so be that I may lay hold on that which also I was laid hold on by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself yet to have laid hold, but one thing I do, forgetting the things which are behind and stretching forward to the things which are before, I press on toward the goal under the prize of the high or upward calling of God in Christ Jesus. So, he is conscious of this tension between his own resting in Christ's finished work of righteous redemption and his own necessity of laboring. And then across in chapter 2 of Philippians, perhaps the simplest and clearest exposition of this principle in the New Testament. Verse 13. Well, verse 12. So then, my beloved, even as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why should you do it with fear and trembling? For it is God that is working in you. Oh, great. God's working in me, so that's going to settle it. 
No, you're working it out. But then look on what it is God is working in you. He is working in you both to will and to do His good pleasure. You must will it. You must do it. He's working it. So the glory goes all to God, but the doing is yours. The believing is yours. The repenting is yours. The striving in prayer is yours. The denying of self is yours. The leaving the TV so you can have time to pray. The denying of sleep so you can be with God and cultivate in your heart further faith in things that have come close to blessing your soul today. Things you've seen with a glimmer of your eye, almost able to rejoice this morning. But alas, I've got to go to work Monday and I'll lose it. Not if you fight and not if you discipline and not if you cry to God, you'll not lose it. But some of you have lost it periodically because you're habitually in this pattern of not striving and laboring and fighting and working and wrestling. We wrestle. Watch out. The devil, like a roaring lion, is stalking about, seeking whom he may devour. What are you going to do about that? Go to sleep and say, well, let the Lord take care of it. Not when the Bible says you must wrestle, you must fight, you must watch. You keep your eyes out. What if you see him coming? You go fight him with the word of God. Some of you men say, oh Lord, help me break these old lifetime bad habits of rotten sin. David says, Lord, I've hid thy word in my heart that I might not sin against thee. How are you going to fight old bad habits if you don't hide the word in your heart? When the devil came and fought Jesus and tempted him, what did Jesus do? What's the weapon he used? He quoted scripture. Ah, but the devil expects that. So the devil quotes scripture. Twist it just a bit. Just a little twisted lemon in his scripture quotations. Just a bit of application. Not quite there. What does the Lord do? He knows the scripture and quotes it back to him and applies the fuller picture to him. And in that way he defeats him and the devil runs with his tail between his legs frustrated. And the angels come and minister. When's the last time a man in this church did that in the front of the battle? Brethren, it's one thing to go three or four weeks without cussing. It may be because the devil just didn't put it in your heart to do so. Don't get puffed up because you ain't done that bad thing in a while. It's one thing to quit smoking for a while. Boy, I've got power. It may be that you haven't been tempted. It may be some of you have confidence in your righteousness because you don't ever lose your temper. Well, it may be that that's your natural makeup. You just don't aren't that kind of person. That may have nothing to do with grace. God may have just put you together as being a low-toned person. And you may be quite offended at others who seem to be a little more high-toned, but it may, could be that they're making more progress in grace and mortification than you. Don't get puffed up. Because just about the time you think you've got it, the devil will come. And he'll jerk the rug right out from under your feet. Do you understand this confluence between God's work and man's work? Finally, turn with me to Revelation chapter 17. And you wouldn't be surprised to find this, our old theme verse. The book of Revelation's theme verse. The central truth of the book of Revelation. The issue, in a nutshell. In Revelation 17, verse 13. He's speaking of the nations of the world and the men of the world under the authority of the devil and his henchmen. And it says in verse 13, These have one mind and they give their power and authority to the beast. Oh, that's, day, that's scary to the believer, isn't it? 
the trembling little church of Christ over in the corner here trying to worship, threatened with, at its, with its life, put down, persecuted, legalized out of existence, zoning laws that limit her. In some countries, not allowed to meet in public. China now has made the law that unless you are a registered pastor in the three self movement, you're not allowed to preach the gospel. That's the liberated China that we've heard about. You've got to be registered with the government and be one of the government's recognized churches and one of their recognized pastors or you can't preach the gospel. So it's not, they're not liberating anybody to preach the gospel. God will get the gospel done. But that's the world this little church lives in. And they all, with one mind, have given their power to the beast who is out to destroy us. In verse 14 it says, These shall war against the Lamb. Well, what does that have to do with us? Well, every time they war against the Lamb, they're warring against us. Because we are in Him and with Him. Read on. And the Lamb shall overcome them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings. But note this next one. And they also shall overcome that are with him. Called and chosen and faithful. The way this union with Christ is worked out in the world. Is that being in him, not only do we have all the blessing that he has secured for us, but we have the warfare that gets us to that blessing. It has been given to you, we read to the Philippians this morning, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. You remember in the book of Acts, they were told... When Paul and Barnabas had set the church in Lystra, they went on. Paul got stoned. Remember, they thought he was dead. They left him lying out there. The disciples went, picked him up. He got up and walked off. We don't know what kind of shape his head was in, uh, what he looked like. But he, we, we can't imagine that he probably had some rough times. And he was under bruises and had some knots on his head and some maybe a broken arm or two. And he went with them and they went on and preached some more. He didn't even didn't miss a lick apparently. Went on and preached in, in Iconium and, and Derby. And when they finished preaching there, they went back to Lystra. And they went to the churches in all those places to confirm the disciples. And they exhorted them and encouraged them with no small encouragement and reminded them that through much tribulation they must enter the kingdom. And they appointed elders in every church and went on their way back to Antioch to bring the report back to the local church mission board under which they had served. Paul and Barnabas, when going back to encourage the saints, wanted to make sure they weren't discouraged and down because they had seen what happened to Paul when he preached. And they said, hey, this is the norm. If you're going to get there, you're going to get there through much tribulation. Brethren, you're not going to avoid problems, fighting, strivings, difficult and very treacherous times and warfare in which there's going to be bloodletting, wounds, problems, discouragements, fightings without and fears within if you're going to go to heaven. That road, the only road which on my and on God's map leads to the city of glory is strewn with landmines. Snipers, robbers and thieves, murderers, and the enemies of Christ and his people. 
if you make it there, you're going to make it through a fight. So understand both sides of the issue. How are you going to do it? Well, there aren't many in this place that would stand and say, Pastor, I've been a Christian for years. I've never had any fights. No spiritual war that I know of. Well, if you say that to me, I'm going to look at you with a scanced look. I'm going to wonder about you. But I know most of you in this place well enough to know that it is not easy. And I watch you when you get down and discouraged. And I watch you when you get trapped into sin. And I watch you when you get all beat up. And I know that if you're going to make it, you've got to gird up the loins of your mind. You've got to get your act together. You've got to strive together in the gospel. You have to pray when you don't feel like praying. And after the first 16 seconds when you don't feel God's presence, you don't quit then. You're a bunch of spoiled brats. Did you know it? Did you know that? You live in a generation of spoiled brats. Oh, run to Jesus. Get my heart warmed. Run up. Say a few prayers. Nothing happens. You don't feel it. In fact, you just feel like your words back. So what do you do? The first gut reaction is, what's the use of praying? Must be something that God's mad at me about. And there's no point. I'm going to go. Forget it. See, I'm back to that again. I was so happy Sunday. Here it's Monday. We're back to that again. I'll cover it and hide it. I can't miss church, but there's no hope for me. What's you supposed to do when that happens? When you start opening your mouth and praying and your mouth doesn't even want to open. And your heart flutters and dies and is afraid. You pray more. You pray more. Prayer is something you don't need extraordinary help to do. Other than God interpreting. Saying words to God. God's given you the vocal equipment to do that. Do you understand that? You can say, Lord, have mercy without any extraordinary equipment. You can say, Lord, you saved me. Bless me without anything happening unusual. You say, but that's in the flesh. Okay. Okay. Be content to deny every part of the flesh. Don't ever do anything in the flesh. You'll never pray. Your tongue will never move because that's fleshy. Your throat will never vibrate. Some people think that what we ought to do is Pastor Allen ought to stay out of the way and not not garble up the word of God by preaching. Okay, let's don't. Let's set a Bible on the altar. You come here a couple of times a week and just read it together. Why do that? Stay home and read your Bible. God seems to think that you ought to be here. God has appointed vessels of clay to preach the truths that you could already read in the Bible. God understands something. He has put this treasure in earthen vessels. And that's where you're going to have to hear it if you hear it. And that's where God's going to meet you. Most often in the preaching of His Word by sinful men. God's going to draw near and He's going to save sinners that way. And He's going to edify the church that way. And He's going to protect you from the devil that way. And it's all the more reason that my heart is utterly grieved when I see men who come under the stress of the devil and then absent themselves from here because they're discouraged. It's just like finding that your wrist has been slashed and in reaction, slash the other one. It's like being told that you have a deadly disease, that if left untreated, it's going to get you. Your response, go to Florida and cry. Brother, the smart response is go to the doctor and live. Go to the hospital where Christ meets sinful sick souls and heals them. 
pray through your emotional down. Open the Bible when you're not interested in open the Bible. That's all the more reason you must open the Bible. But it's in that strenuous exertion of your redeemed humanity that you will discover the almighty power of God. And it's after you've disciplined yourself to stay true to those things which you've been taught to do that you'll say to God be all the glory. You'll never look back and say, well, if I hadn't prayed, it wouldn't have happened. You just won't be able to do that. You'll say, what a God. It's your duty when you meet in this building, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. It doesn't matter what mood you were in when you woke up. It doesn't matter how hard it was for you to get your joints bending. It's your duty to equip your soul to worship God. To be strong in the Lord. Whatever it takes. It may mean some of you are going to have to get here before we start. So you have a bit of moment with your brain to sit still a minute and think. Read a hymn. Open the Bible. Cry to God to cleanse your heart. It's your duty then when we begin to stand to sing. To look at that hymnal and read the words. And let them soak in. And make your voice obey you. And say stand up and bless the Lord oh my soul. You don't do that because it comes naturally. You do it because it's right. And it's in that that the blessing will come. When you come to pray, you don't feel like raising your voice or getting into the groan, as Purgeon called it, the holy groan. You don't want to do it. It doesn't sound natural. That's not me. So you want to chat with God a bit. When we plead with you to engage your, yourself in your prayers, to get a, you say, but that's fleshly. I don't, that would look like it's me. That's too. God made you the way you are to use all that you are with, so that what you do, you do with your might. Some of you are sitting here. Not a word I've said sunk in. I can smell it. You have no intention of walking out of here and changing your habits tomorrow morning and tonight. Not one. Some of you that want to get home, you're tired. Please bear with a pastor who can feel that in his bones and doesn't want to let them get away with it. For their own good. I tell you that a lazy generation produces theology that says let go and let God. You want to ever have victory and triumph and the joys of Christ. And if you want the Bible ever to become dear to you. If you want your prayers ever to be meaningful. You've got to go beyond the way it feels. You've got to stretch your nerve and put with vigor the gospel armor on. And you've got to plead with God for things that in your, in your down deep in your viscerals. You don't really feel like pleading about. Some of you do this when you pray. You know, I am not. I don't love those people in Phoenix. Why should I pray with any? It'd be hypocrisy for me to pray with any zeal for them. You might as well say, I don't feel like getting up and going to work. It'd be hypocrisy to go to work not feeling like it. But so you don't. You don't have a problem with work because you get paid. Some of you go on and make your body get up tomorrow morning because there's reward in it. I tell you. If you make your soul rise up 
And if you chasten and discipline your soul, and if you give orders to your soul, and if you rule over your soul, and if you dictate to your soul and discipline your emotions and your will by your mind of the knowledge of the truths, and you grapple with the devil in the name of Christ, and you stand in the might of Christ, I tell you what will happen. Your hymn singing will go through the roof. Your prayers will begin to reverberate through this place. You'll quit caring what anybody thinks about how your voice sounds. And you'll pour your soul out for, to God to bless people you have never met. You'll make yourself, as Paul did with the Colossians, strive with people's souls whom you have never seen. That's your duty, man. Not to lie back and whenever it fits your emotions. You'll then pray with vigor, and if it doesn't, the Lord must not have led me. You've got commandments staring you in the face. You don't need to be led. You've already been led. As one man said, some don't need to be led as much as they need a kick in the pants. The last 15 minutes has been designed to kick you in the pants. Well, the underlying blessing of all this promise is our union with Christ so that everything he has purchased and owned and won is ours. But the way we're going to get there to what he's won for us and have it in the hand and feel the fullness of its weight and privilege is by a war and a striving and an overcoming to the end. It's to him that he will give the rule of the nations and the morning star to him Don't quit. Not now. Don't stop now. Don't stop crying to Christ now. Don't stop looking to Jesus now. At your weakest, that's when you need to look to Christ. When you've utterly blown it, that's when of all times you need to look away from yourself to Christ. Don't stop that. Make yourself go to the sanctuary of God. When everything in you says, don't bother, what's the use? It's over for you. It won't work for you. Do it because God promised that at the end, there's great reward. I have only one application after all these applications. Parents take a lesson from Christ. The Lord knows. That we are forgetful and frail and prone to slip up. So he gives us incentives. If you overcome, you get some rewards. In your parenting, learn the principle of holy incentive. They need encouragement to do what you're telling them. Don't beat them down. Give them an answer for a reward at the end of it. Train your children to think that if they do what you say, it's going to be worth their while. There's nothing wrong with that. If there is, the Lord is wrong. Some of you parents, because you don't take comfort in the promises of Christ to you if you're overcome, don't know how to encourage your little ones, and you've done nothing but beat them down all their life with your demands. Some of you demand of others what you would never let God demand of you. You obey me. I'm your never once have encouraged their hearts by saying you've done well here need to grow here you do this though and it'll go well with you 
do this and I'll do this. Do that and I'll help you here. Do that with them. Teach them that. Learn from Christ. That's the only application I wanted to make other than all that other stuff I said. But I hope you learn to parent by watching Christ and the way he deals with us. And I hope it'll help. Well, brethren, I'm glad that my hope is not in me. It's not in my endurance. It's not in my strength. It's the strength of the Lord. I'm glad I'm united with Christ. But I'm not going to be surprised tomorrow when the devil comes and knocks on my door and attacks me. I won't be surprised when it happens in the foyer tonight. I won't be surprised before I get to my car. I won't be surprised by the time I sit over here after I've taken my glass of water when I finish preaching that Satan's going to come in. That's the nature of this life. It's certainly the nature of the Christian ministry. But I am going to be surprised if the Lord doesn't keep his promise. May God uphold you. May God strengthen you with might in the inner man. May God lead you on to victory after victory. May God make this a church of people who rejoice in him. And you know what it means to bring down strongholds in his name increasingly. Brethren, I'm not finished unless God's finished. I plan on new things happening here. I plan on greater things. I want them to happen. I'm praying for them to happen. I'm not going to stop praying for greater things until the Lord either shuts my mouth or takes me home. And I want a bunch of men and women to join me. And I want us to lay hold on things that we haven't seen and dreamed about yet. And I want us to pray down things that people wouldn't expect. And I want us to ask for things in our husbands' lives and in our fathers' and mothers' and in our children and in our families and in our relatives and in our friends and in our working mates. And I want us to pray down power on Albany. And I want us to pray a church out into bigger places and bigger demand and bigger glory. I don't want us to quit now. We've barely scratched the surface. It's going to be hard. We need the power of Christ. I trust that this stuff has not berated you. I trust that it's not overdone. I trust that you will hear the burden of a pastor's heart. And we learn what it means to enjoy the blessing of union with Christ. Therefore, to overcome in the battle that we have in union with him. He will give to us who overcome all we could ever dream or want. Let's don't stop until we've gotten to the end. What a day that will be. When we together will rejoice looking back on the triumphs over the trouble. What a day that will be when none of you will have to come out and say, Pray for me, Pastor, I'm struggling. But we'll be standing as accomplished saints at the feet of our accomplished Savior with nothing but praise that it's all over. And all the enemies are defeated. And all the victory is ours. All because of Jesus. Let us pray. Our Father, I have struggled to preach this stuff because there has been a sense in my soul that it's hard for our people to hear it. I'm aware of my inability to say what it is I've seen. And I pray that you would take what I've said and translate it. That you would make the principles of Scripture clear. That if I've said anything amiss, you may blot it out. And not let it become a deterrent to the minds of your people. Oh, Lord, in mercy, apply these things to a people who need to know the blessing that it's theirs in Christ and be equipped for the battle that is surely theirs in Christ. Lead us to the end. Stay with us to the victory. And make us not to stumble in the process. Lord, hear our plea and teach us the truth. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.